All right. Well, this is a very challenging passage. Okay? Let's not pretend it's not. It is. Uh, I spent a lot of time reading this passage and reading numerous, numerous commentaries uh, because it is so perplexing as to what Jesus is saying. And so I concluded that I either had to give you one, you know, black gospel service type sermon of an hour and a half, or I needed to break it up. So guess which one I chose to do? I took mercy upon you, pity upon you, and I've broken it up. So, but I'm breaking this into two certain messages uh, because what I want to do in this message is articulate the big picture of why is prophecy so hard to interpret, and I want to provide some principles for how to interpret prophecy responsibly. And then next week, having given some foundation work today, next week we're going to walk through these verses and try to, as best we can, maintaining a a large measure of humility, try to understand what we believe God is saying to us in these words. Because this passage clearly deals with things yet to come. From the vantage point of the disciples to even our vantage point, it refers to things yet to come. It touches on the judgment. It touches on the final vindication or the return of Christ, the end times. This is known as the doctrine of eschatology, the study of latter days, end times. And this doctrine, probably more than any other doctrine out there, has been the subject of much speculation and interest. People love studying and reading about the end times. Uh, This week I looked at Amazon, for example. And on Amazon this week, there were just over 95,000 books for sale that deal with the topic of the end times. There are just over 6,000 books that deal with the topic of salvation. 95,000 books that deal with the end times, 6,000 books for sale that deal with salvation, and just over 2,000 books that deal with the Trinity, which is arguably the most crucial doctrine of them all. So, people love the end times. Since the late 1800s, there's been a system of doctrine at work in our culture that has steadily gained ground by appealing to, quote-unquote, the common man, claiming to believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible, and the events of 1948, when the nation of Israel was, was reestablished by UN decision, uh, that set off a firestorm in our country. And then in 1967, some of you may recall this, in the Six-Day War, when Israeli defense forces took possession and reoccupied Jerusalem, it set off a veritable tidal wave of end-time speculation. You can Google the, the, the news footage of the Israeli forces entering the Temple Mount area and coming to the Wailing Wall, which was, the, which was a sub, uh, subterranean um, um, support wall system that, that was built like, like a uh, foundation support system for the temple, 
It was the one wall that the Romans left when they destroyed it simply so that way people would know that something had been there as a testament to the fact that no wall could stop Roman forces. So this wailing wall, which was a foundational subterranean foundation for the temple, was there. And you can see the Israeli defense forces come up and they throw down their weapons and they're just weeping. Now, ever since that six-day war in 1967, that is the event that's credited with causing American Christians to read prophecy with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And ever since then, whenever something big goes down, we're quick to try to find its fulfillment in the Bible. For instance, many of you are probably familiar with the 1970 book, by Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, where he tries to identify in events and in nation states contemporary to his writing the exact corresponding fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, with Russia and Libya playing key parts. And he didn't try to predict a date of the return the way guys like Harold Camping have, but he nonetheless speculated that there was a very good chance that the 1980s would be the final decade of, of the earth. Many people have a fascination with the end times. And despite Jesus' admonition that no one knows the day or the hour, people have in an undeterred manner tried to predict the date of the end of the world. Not just Harold Camping, many others. I think about Ellen G. White the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist group. She had many failed predictions of when the end of the world would come. And yet, she's still the founder of a cult. People followed her despite that. See that no one deceives you, Jesus says. Well, there we are. All right, so, when it comes to the study of end times, it's interesting. We want to know what's coming. Okay, we have this fascination with knowing what's coming down the pike. Even if we can't dodge it, even if we can't get out of the way, we like knowing it's coming. I don't know about you, I'm not so sure I want to know the plane is crashing. But nonetheless, some people do, okay? Uh, people are fascinated by it, but yet tempers run high and hot regarding discussions about the end times. People get worked up into a frenzy, and many times there's a lot of dogmatism. There are people who are emphatic, for example, that the church will exist forever in the new earth. I'm sorry, that Israel will exist forever in the new earth, ethnic Israel, and that the church will exist forever in the new heavens, forever distinct and forever separate. And they're very emphatic about that. Um, I believe that 2 Timothy 2.14 has much to say to that whole mindset. 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. It reads like it's his final words. You can just see he's, he's pouring his, life, his heart out as he says, I can, I can see my life being poured out like a drink offering. And in 2 Timothy 2.14, he tells Timothy, and by extension us, to avoid foolish controversies over words. In other words, avoid these nitpicky, minutia debates because they're profitable to no one. In fact, they're destructive because they tear apart the unity that would otherwise exist. And then instead, 
And then very next verse, which I'm sure many of you know, 2 Timothy 2.15, what does he say? Do your best to present yourself to God as a one approved, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so, verse 14 cannot be used to justify theological imprecision or, or a disinterest in getting to accuracy. Verse 15 tells us that we have to dig in and do the hard work, study, perspire, work at rightly handling the Bible because it's complicated sometimes. But at the same time, have a little bit of humility knowing that you're not going to know all the answers to all the questions. God has not revealed all the answers to all the questions. And so that means that we need to study And avoid the kind of irresponsible exegesis and hermeneutics that results in us lambasting people who disagree with our interpretations of things. Like, for example, in Revelation, there's those locusts. Raise your hand if you've heard people say that those locusts are attack helicopters. And if you disagree with me, you don't believe in the literal interpretation of Scripture. I've heard that so many times, it makes me want to vomit. That's irresponsible exegesis. And it's bullying. Let's avoid that. So, when it comes to this topic, a great deal of humility is needed. I read 37 commentaries for this passage Normally, when I read my commentaries, there's a shot group that's pretty tight, right? They may have some interpretive differences, but typically it's it's pretty tight shot group. I hope that analogy, that illustration makes sense to you. The grouping is pretty close. There's not a huge range of opinion because things are relatively clear. But out of 37 commentaries, there were at least 15 distinct views on this, some of them widely divergent. Why is that? Why is that? Why is it that out of all the genres of Scripture, why is it that prophecy is so hard to interpret? So what I want to do now is go over a few reasons why prophecy is difficult with an eye towards laying a foundation for rightly handling this genre so that way next week we can dive into this passage with gusto. So, The first reason why prophecy is so difficult to interpret is by its design, by its intent. 2 Peter 3.16 tells us that some things in Scripture are hard to understand. There you go. You have the Holy Spirit-inspired author saying that some of the things in the Bible are hard to understand. Now, as it applies to prophecy, what we want is a roadmap. We want turn-by-turn directions to get from here to there, and we want to know what exactly we got to do and where we got to go so that we can avoid as much of the heartache and pain and trouble as possible. God did not give us prophecy to provide us a detailed roadmap to the future. What he does is he gives us just enough to promote faithfulness. That is the goal of prophecy, faithfulness. 
Okay? Second, prophecy is difficult to understand because it's usually pretty enigmatic. Prophecy is written with a kind of esoteric quality as if someone is looking through a hazy window. Okay? There are some passages, some prophecies that are remarkably famous precisely because they don't follow that path. For example, 1 Kings 13.2 was written, and it takes place several hundred years before the fact, but after Jeroboam, the first king of the northern empire, builds his altar, the prophet comes up and he names a future king, Josiah by name, will destroy this and burn your ashes on it written several hundred years before. And then, of course, in Isaiah, Isaiah 48, going into 45, he names Cyrus by name as the one who will officiate and lead the return or authorize the return from exile. Again, written several hundred years before it happened. Both these occurrences are exceptional, and in fact, it's precisely because they're so clear that liberals to the man say this is not true, but it is. But those two kinds of passages are the exception. Usually it paints a picture that's in type and shadow, and so the language itself can be hard to grasp. It's not painting a perfectly clear picture. The third reason why interpreting prophecy is difficult is because of the preponderance of highly metaphorical language and idiom and hyperbole. It makes it difficult to know when something is literally literal or figuratively literal. Have we ever, have you ever seen someone who's weeping, they're mourning, someone has either betrayed them or passed away or something, and we say, they have a broken heart. You ever heard that phrase? Okay, if you see someone crying and you say they have a broken heart. Are you making a medical statement or an emotional statement? Should the response be to quickly go get an AED machine and, and a physician to you know, open that chest up and, and, and solder that bad boy back together? No. A broken heart is a metaphor. It's not just some pie in the sky thing. It refers to something literal and understandable. Deep, intense, searing loss. But the metaphor itself is just that, an idiom, a figure of speech. So many times in Scripture, in the use of prophetic language, they have the same type of metaphoric, idiomatic speech. So a, a common one in the Old Testament that we find here is the language of cataclysmic astrological events. The sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood, stars falling from the sky. It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over whenever any prophecy is given against any foreign power that's about to be shut down by God and overthrown. That language finds its place. And then, of course, you famously see how it was a metaphor in Acts 2. When Peter gives his recounting of what's going on here at Pentecost, and he recites the prophecy by Joel in Joel 2 about the sun turning dark and the moon turning to blood, 
Now, the moon didn't turn to blood. Those idioms refer to cataclysmic events in the heavens as representative of unsettling things occurring on earth in the same way that we say that something is an earth-shattering event. Or, like I read today, as some commentator was talking about the situation in London yesterday, a seismic event. We use those kind of idioms, and they use those astrological idioms to refer to very real political situations. Okay, so highly metaphorical language, idioms, and hyperbole. The fourth thing that is a reason why prophecy is hard is because of something known as prophetic perspective. Uh, oftentimes, what will happen is a prophet will give a, a vision that he has. He will deliver an oracle, and he presents as a unified whole something that has various differences in range of perspective. So that from our vantage point or his vantage point, it seems like a seamless event, but yet in reality there's great differences in scope or distance. Kind of like in the movie, uh, Lord, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, okay? They used camera tricks to present the image that the, that the hobbits and the dwarves were small when in actuality they were normal size actors. And how they accomplished this feat was actually really low tech, they simply had them stand further away. So in the film that you watch, they're looking directly across, talking to each other, but in actuality, they were about 10 feet apart. Perspective. And how you see this in real life, if you can look up at this screen. So this picture is back from Alaska. Can you also, on the, on the right side, see this? Okay, I can only be in one place, so... This is my low-tech pointer. All right. This is from a scenic overlook driving up to Denali National Park. Okay? It's beautiful. Love it. Right? There in the distance, looming always in the Alaska landscape, is the mountain formerly known as Mount McKinley, Denali now. Okay? Now, what I want to show you is you can probably see there's mountains here. There's mountains there. some mountains in the back. There's some... Mountain there, mountains there. That's the Alaska Range. What's hard to tell is that these mountains right here, which are shorter than these mountains, are actually much higher. They're higher. And you know why they're higher? But they look smaller? They're further away. But yet as you stand here looking at it, wow, I just see rows of mountains. And what you also don't see is that the distance from where we took this at the scenic overlook to these front foothills is probably about 10 miles, okay? But to Mount McKinley, or Denali, from where we are, is almost 60. To the, these mountains here are actually at the base of the camp, or at the base of the park right there. They're about 40 miles away. But again, you don't have any notion of that distance by simply looking at the picture. All you see is a row of mountains. So in the same way, with prophecy, what oftentimes happens is there's an event that's presented. The prophet gets an oracle. 
And yet it's hard to tell which part of this is happening sooner, which part of this is happening later. And you see this in the Bible. For example, if you look at Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, for the sake of time, do it at home. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, there are clearly elements of Christ's mission that took place in the first coming, and there are aspects of it that are going to take place in the second coming. Additionally, sometimes prophecy has a fulfillment that finds its locus of focus at the first coming of Christ, and a greater fulfillment will happen at the second. For example, Genesis 3.15. When the prophecy is given that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Now, did that happen when Christ conquered at the, at the cross? Sure. But is it going to happen in a full, more full and final form when Jesus comes back and casts the devil and everything into the fiery abyss? Yeah. So we can say that Jesus has fulfilled that, but yet there's an even more full fulfillment coming. Okay, the last reason why prophecy is so hard is there's so much typology. Typology is different than metaphor. Typology means that something has a real-life significance at the time it's said, and it's only later that we learn that there was more significance there than originally met the eye. For example, a famous one would be Isaiah chapter 7, specifically verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. That's about Jesus. Well, read Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 8, and it sure seems in the context that it's referring to something right there since the immediate threat was Assyria and before this child is born, that threat would be gone. Well, of course, if it's talking about Jesus 700 years in the future, Assyria is gone. But then in chapter 8, when he's addressing his own son, he calls him, oh, Emmanuel. So in the immediate context, we see that there was a fulfillment that is legitimately meaningful to the original audience, but yet... There's something more going on so that in later fulfillment of time, when Jesus comes, we see that this is the true, this is the true fulfillment of that word. Same with Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. Read Hosea 11. It's talking about how God has cared for his people from the beginning and they've continued to rebel. But it's applied to Jesus. Not that it got wrong but it applied to the people of Israel as a nation, and then Jesus as true Israel demonstrates that there's a more full application of that. So what that means is sometimes there are prophecies that have an immediate application to the contemporary audience. So it's not like he's talking a foreign language. He's not talking over their heads or past them. He's talking to them. But yet, in the fullness of time, we learn that there's something greater going on. Okay, so when it comes to prophecy then, in light of all these difficulties, two things to avoid are to think that prophecy is a checklist. I've seen so many people have these prophetic timelines where they think, oh, we can check this, pro this one's been fulfilled, this was fulfilled when the Soviet Union split apart, okay, okay. Uh, 
Prophecy doesn't exist like that. It serves more as a, as a guideline for us to have faithfulness in the midst of a turbulent world. But it's also important for us to avoid speculation about the end times as if the end times is something out there. A very important thing to remember is that many times the Bible speaks in terms of something as happened, as happening, and as something that will happen. For example, your salvation. You have been saved. You are being saved. And ultimately, you will be saved. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. You're being saved from the power of sin. And you will be saved ultimately from even the presence of sin. And it's the same thing with the end of the world. The end has come. Did you know that? If you read Hebrews 9.26... Jesus, it says, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin in the sacrifice of himself. So the end has come. And the end is a present tense where in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes that all the stuff that happened in the Old Testament was written for our sake, for us on whom the end of the age has come. You see, ever since the coming of Christ, We live in the end times. There is nothing separating us from the return of Christ. He can come back truly at any minute. And what has happened is some people try to put up blockers and barriers and arbitrarily decide, oh, that's not really true because, you know, verse 10, all the nations have to be evangelized first. Well, this gets back to humility. What does it mean to say that all the nations have been evangelized? As we'll see next week, it says in verse 10, all the nations must first be, the gospel must be proclaimed in all the nations. Well, by Romans 16, here's what Paul's able to say. The gospel has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Whoa. Colossians 1.6, the gospel has indeed borne fruit in the whole world. Colossians 1.23, the gospel has been proclaimed, past tense, to every creature under heaven. So from the vantage point of the writers of Scripture, do you think they would be comfortable saying that from their vantage point, the world had heard the gospel? According to what they wrote. But yet we know, from our understanding of what constitutes a nation and a people group, that there's more work to be done. But still... Because in the mind of the biblical writers, that requirement could be checked off. That means that we have no business acting as if we're delaying the Lord's return. He can come back whenever. Okay, so understanding the Bible prophecy is hard, but it is possible. Okay, you have to do good hermeneutics. You have to uh, engage with, with what the Bible is saying and let the Bible speak for itself and interpret itself. So when you find metaphors and idioms and and styles of language, check across Scripture. How is this used in other Bible passages? But I think the absolute number one maxim for interpreting prophecy is this. And if there's anything else I say that you hear, hear this. The number one maxim for interpreting prophecy is this. The main thing is the plain thing. And the plain thing is the main thing. 
We get bogged down in all the little riddles. But here's the fact of the matter. In this passage, they ask Jesus, when is this going to be? And he starts out by telling them when it's not. And we'll dive more into that next week. But in this passage, he gives them nine imperatives. Stay awake. Be alert. Be on guard. Do not be deceived. Over and over. This is not an academic answer. It's a pastoral answer. And so the very real truth is that what this passage is ultimately saying is that the key to being prepared for the events of the future is to hold on to the word of Jesus and be faithful in the present. Because if you don't, then you will be deceived and you will be discouraged by what comes down the pike. And if you are deceived and discouraged, then you won't persevere to the end. And in the words of verse 9, you won't be saved. You must persevere to the end. Whether that end is the end of the world or just the end of your natural life, you got to persevere. And the key to persevering is holding on to the word and being faithful in the present and not letting all the uncertainties of life unsettle you. So that's the gist of what all prophecy is about. So what I want to do now is close, and next week, having given some reasons why prophecy is hard, we're going to actually look and go through this passage and talk about this passage verse by verse. So let's pray.